turn our attention to what might be called the libertarian left, or more popularly, anarchism. This is the same logic shared by Marx and Freud. Functioning libertarian socialist institutions, I think they are an interesting model that uh, I think is highly relevant. family does that like crazy people <laughs> they have full-on espresso before bed and then mm-hmm. they go to sleep like it's nothing mm. they're just like wow what a nice time to go to sleep <laughs> could not be me if i even have a sniff of caffeine before like i want to say like 6 p.m does it <laughs> i'm awake I- yeah, I think since moving to the UK, I've just been like, okay, a tea is decent. So the I love tea, the tea. Has re- tea has more caffeine than coffee, apparently. I don't need to know this. I don't know if this is just a myth, like the myth that drinking tea on a hot day will make you colder. And with that, let's begin the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Theory-ish. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a shorter episode and we're going to introduce you to a theory and today's is going to be queer theory mainly because we've been talking about queer theory a lot this season so it's going to be a shorter hopefully half an hour episode. I'm going to be taking the lead on this one today mainly because I've written this in many other forms and and bits and pieces and there's no specific text for today because it's more talking about queer theory as a whole but I will mention a lot of text throughout this and I'm going to put those in the description. (laughs) I also want to shout out kind of two texts that if you want a real intro to queer theory beyond this podcast these are really really good ones. So there's Queer A Graphic History by Meg John Barker and Jules Scheel and that's like more of a comic book style book and then there's Queer Theory Now which is by Hannah McCann and Whitney Monaghan which was published in 2019. So those are your kind of base texts if you really want an introduction to Queer Theory as a whole. Yeah, if you read a Queer Graphic History 1, it is a fantastic text. I like sipped it through it since Hannah has a copy of it. And two, it's really funny illustrations. Like Foucault just hanging out with Judith Butler. Yeah. A girl could never. <laughs> it's cute. So that's kind of where we're getting the base of this stuff from. And then I've pulled from all the texts that I've read over the last few years. So <laughs> if we begin then, uh, I'm going to talk about kind of queer in the beginning. So originally, as a term, has very negative connotations. That's why some people still don't really like the term. The original meaning of queer in the 16th century in English-speaking countries was something kind of strange or illegitimate. And queer, a graphic history, states that to bring in queer street means um, someone having financial difficulty. So it has these negative connotations. In the 19th century, queer also starts to mean like odd. And even in the 20th century, it was still used this way. In the Sherlock Holmes stories, the original Arthur Conan Doyle ones, you can actually find queer kind of used in that way. And in America, the phrase queer is a $3 bill. And it kind of originates from that earlier 20th century, 19th century. 
And that kind of means something odd or suspicious. So a dollar bill, it's like a quid, but instead of it being a coin, it's, you know, paper money. And at that time, they also had a $2 bill, which is just a bill that was representative of two monies. (laughs) So as queer as a $3 bill would mean that it was, like, fake. That it's not real money. Mm. Also, the term queer was used to describe illness. So it's like, I feel queer would be like, I feel odd. I feel like an illness coming in. So there's also like that kind of connotation of something being disturbing or wrong within the self. So again, according to queerographic history, the earliest recorded use of queer as a form of homophobic abuse is actually said to be, and I didn't know this, it's said to be an 1894 letter by John Sholto Douglas, the Marquis of Queensbury. He was the father of Alfred Douglas and is actually the person who famously accused Oscar Wilde of having an affair with his son. (gasps) (laughs) So he's the OG homophobe. (laughs) Truly, he's like, I will create an environment so toxic. Yeah, yeah. Do you know where that's from? No. Glee. (laughs) Oh, damn. But from that kind of point onwards, because I don't know if it's connected, but that case was very widely published. It was very well known. But queer becomes associated with a derogatory term for same-sex sex or people with same-sex attractions. In particular, gay men who were more feminine or effeminate. And it's kind of similar to the phrase that was definitely used when I was younger, but the phrase, that's so gay. So if you use the term gay in a negative sense, essentially you're calling negative things gay. There was like an active like info campaign in the States where like celebrities and famously like queer celebrities, like Wanda Sykes, were saying like, don't use the word gay as like derogatory, da da da. And infamously, there's one with Hilary Duff, where she's like, saying that is not cool. So, like, I I remember this very much from our childhood. So, I am a little bit older than you, but, like, there was that cross campaign where they were trying to get that out of the lexicon because it was used so much. I feel like it worked as well because I don't really hear it anymore. No, it's also just... But I'm also not a child anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the new gen, the Gen Xs and the Alphas, they will clock you for a lot of things, but sexual orientation has sort of not become the main bullying tactic. At least, like, the times have changed. I'm sure there's still areas that still use this. But for the most part, it's less so. So later on, kind of in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it became a an activist tactic to reclaim oppressive words that we use negatively against you. So queer was one of those words. Words like dyke were also reclaimed. There's other words out there. But again, according to queer graphic history, one of the early examples was an activist group called Queer Nation who circulated a queer's read this flyer at the 1990 New York Pride March. Also, kind of to point out here a major shift in queer activism was because of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s 
And this also has an impact on the creation of queer theory and why people do certain things and say certain things. And yeah, it, there's a connection there. Yeah, well, it shifted from just being like a per people should exist to exist to being a humanitarian effort because they're seeing a large enough minority group being decimated and ignored by the government. So it got people thinking, specifically allies, if the government's so willing to abandon them, they're willing to abandon us. And it sounds grim, but you know, when you talk to people, I worked with people that were in New York in the 80s and in the 70s and obviously in the 90s. And they describe these times with like the same type of trauma that like a soldier is coming back from war so it, it cannot be overstated enough how grim this time was and queer theory is bouncing off of these current affairs and it's seeing the people around them die and it's just like we need to do something so it was a term that was reclaimed and then it entered academia so queer studies was trying to move and pick up from gay and lesbian studies uh an example that i can give you is lesbian and gay history which was kind of looking to find yourself in the past to queer history which was to question how these terms came about and why certain sexualities existed in the past and why certain gender identities or expressions of gender existed in the past. So it's a movement away from simply saying, you know, we existed in the past. It's not saying it's a a homogenous kind of thing that can be tracked that way. Jeffrey Weeks has a really good article about this published in 2012 called Querying the Modern Homosexual. Again, all the references will be in the description. So queer theory then was a theoretical approach that starts to question and move a lot of things. We'll go into this a little bit more, especially why it's so hard to define queer theory. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But academically, it actually began with scholars in the 1990s. So notably, Gloria Anzaldúa was already using the term queer theory, But in 1990, Teresa de Loretis organized the first queer theory conference in University of California, Santa Cruz. And this led to a special issue of the journal Differences, a journal of feminist cultural studies on queer theory, lesbian and gay sexualities. David Halperin in 2003 actually says this was a controversial move at the time because queer was really only just starting to be used affirmatively by activists and other people. Interestingly, also, three years after the conference, Deloretis rejects the term queer theory, stating that people aren't actually using it in a political or critical way. I didn't know that part. <laughs> no, I did not know that either. Again, queerographic history, it's full of these little tidbits. and once more I skimmed (laughs) (laughs) so there's several main areas of thinking and political action that influence queer theory and I'm going to list a few of them here so postmodernism which is a late 20th century style and concept in the arts, architecture and criticism and 
it's a bit complicated, but it marks a kind of emphasis on language and deconstruction and fragmentation and there being multiple truths. And Jean-Paul Sartre is one of these kind of postmodern thinkers. Sartre says that we're in a constant state of self-creation and we're both free and responsible for what we create. So there's lots of other stuff in there. But connected to this is post-structuralism, which I don't know about this, but from what I read in Queer Theory Now, it's similar to postmodernism, but it's a different kind of um It's a thing. different facet. Yeah. And also with post-structuralism, a lot of people that are considered post-structuralists do not agree with the label. Yeah. So post-structuralism is a bit of an umbrella catch-all term for very complicated theory that's coming out at this point. It also is represented in multiple like ways. It's not just like sit-down theory. It's used in architecture and art and all these things. We do not have the time yeah, yeah. <laughs> to go into the politics of post-structuralism. But it is interesting. <laughs> it is fascinating. But the term, I think it's just being used, especially within academia, because it is just easier. Yeah. Uh, which goes back to the word queer. <laughs> yeah. And I, as far as I saw as well, one of the differences was one of them has more of a focus on art and language and yep. one of them is trying to focus more outside of that. So post-structuralism then is this rejection of an absolute truth. There is no truth. There is only constructions of truths. Foucault is very, very into this, as well as Lacan and Derrida are seen as like key figures. Mm -hmm. All three of them also do not sort of belong together in a way. Lacan is going post-Freudian. Derrida is doing whatever the thing Derrida does. Derrida has no rules. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's also a rejection of people like Freud and Marx that say there are kind of grand narratives that explain human experience. And so... It's also a rejection a little bit of objectivism. So again, thinking about power and power relations between people and that being what creates these truths. And if this sounds quite overwhelming, it's because it is and that is <laughs> completely fine. You know, we are partly doing this podcast to sort of work our brains around all these things as well. Especially I skirt queer theory in my work. It's not my main focus, but it is there. You work exclusively almost with queer theory and even uh, we were struggling to sort of grasp all of this in the timeline so yeah, yeah. if you're having difficulty do not worry it's complicated but basically these are the main complicated ones queer theory also draws on lesbian feminism lesbian of color theory and activism and i'll come back to this at the end because queer theory is often borrowed from this knowledge while subsequently being exclusionary of queer people of colour and non-Western queerness. So we'll come back to that. But some of the key figures there are people like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks. There's also LGB activism, so lesbian, gay, bisexual activism, gay and lesbian studies, and trans activism and theory. Again... There's issues here with trans studies and theory because trans studies becomes sort of its own separate thing. As trans people have kind of stated that queer theorists have been theorizing about trans bodies without including their voices. Heather Love actually in a book called Underdogs in 2021, so this is very recent, states, quote, many streams, both activism and academic, fed into queer studies. The legacy of AIDS activism, the feminist sex wars, which we won't go into, but the 
the third world and black feminism and trans politics among others have yet to been fully acknowledged or integrated into the field end quote it has its own issues <laughs> yes yeah. but we'll kind of come back to some of those at the end to, to give you some examples so queer theory is interdisciplinary in nature but it can be linked quite particularly to literary studies because you have writers doing something called close readings of texts and texts that can include literary cultural political but also things like films and games and signs and yeah yeah and if you listen to our epistemology of the closet part one one of the chapters is literally 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 <laughs> uh on and literary studies and while we didn't know the text it was being used in this way to show presence of queerness within fiction and all that this is because language is connected to creating certain knowledges and if you want to understand how knowledge is created you have to understand how language is used in that way. Queer theory is also because of its history connected to sexuality and gender studies but it can also be used more broadly than this and I just want to say some other people that are key in queer theory that I won't really mention for the rest of this episode are people like Michelle Foucault, Judith Butler, Eve Sedgwick. Butler and Foucault in particular see sexuality and gender as socially constructed. You also might have noticed we keep mentioning Foucault and it's because of even if you like him or not, he is one of the founders of this sort of thought. And because of his style of writing where each book was not related to the other, he sort of trickles into many different aspects of what we consider queer theory. Yeah, I'll mention it now, but I'll also like expand on it later. This is why queer theory is so connected to western academia because it almost in a lot of ways people find it hard to talk about queer theory without drawing on people like Foucault or Butler and there's been efforts to almost create queer theory outside of these western knowledges so decolonizing queer theory in a way. So a definition I have, (laughs) 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 queer is kind of a tricky term as it's often represented as being indefinable. You'll find a really just many, many sources, particularly from the 90s and early 2000s, debating what queer theory is, might be, could be, or should be. And despite being indefinable, I find it very interesting that queer is actually a term that several organizations, institutions, and individuals now choose to define themselves by and offer clarity of their existence to the public. This indefinableness has led to criticisms that queer is too inaccessible, too abstract and complex to be engaged with on a wider basis. As somebody who went into my PhD not knowing anything about queer theory, I can tell you it is extremely hard to get into. Even if you have an expert helping you, It takes months because they all draw on each other. It takes months to almost untangle that web and find an entry point. I almost describe it as slippery Mm. because once you think you get a grasp on it, like you may hold it too tight and it just, it goes in a different direction. I'm one of those people that identifies as queer and I used to just identify as like pan or what have you but then I started feeling as if my involvement in these spaces was just beyond sexual orientation it encompasses how I react and think and talk in this 
world and reality that we all live in. And this is where queer continues to be sort of an indefiable word because it's not just sexual orientation. It falls under many other categories, but at the same time, it's never in that category at all. It's sort of like a Schrodinger's cat situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Schrodinger's queer. <laughs> the Schrodinger's queer. That's the name of the episode. So... I'm going to point out a few ways queer has been and can be used, but I'm also going to complicate these a little bit because I think it's important to complicate these so that you're not just going out. If you listen to this episode and you're like, oh, queer theory, I want to use it. I want you to understand that it can be more complicated and I want you to complicate it, to be honest. So firstly, LGBTQ+. So if you don't know what that term means, and I think I've already used it, sorry. (laughs) It's lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, slash questioning, plus. And so plus captures anything else. There's many, many versions of this. This is just the one that I tend to use. But queer can be used as an umbrella term instead of LGBTQ+, because it can be seen as capturing those who fall outside of the usual LGBTQ plus acronym. So you have, for example, men who would define as straight having sex with men, right? And so where do they come under this umbrella of queerness? There's also the feeling that LGBTQ plus uh, as an acronym lends more importance to the more commonly used sexuality and gender identity labels For example, lesbian, gay, trans, etc. And leaves other identities such as genderqueer or non-binary to one side, right? And so this is not a word used by all LGBTQ plus people. I just want to put that in there so that you don't start running around calling people queer. (laughs) Also, don't do that. No, don't. (laughs) Unless you know them very, very well. But don't be... You know, even with the best intentions, maybe not going up to people and saying, do you identify as queer? Because some people really do not like this word. Don't be like, what up, queers? (laughs) Particularly because older LGBTQ plus people tend to remember this word being used against them. So they still have these negative connotations. Yeah, it gets more complicated than that. But some academics, such as Lauren Ballant and Michael Warner, so this was in 1995, state that queer can never stand in as an umbrella term for LGBTQ plus individuals, as then it might become too laden with meaning and lose its ability to critique. So interestingly, institutions have begun to use the word queer as if it's interchangeable with LGBTQ plus. And so perhaps in some ways they were actually right with this criticism of connecting queer to LGBTQ plus in that way. This tends to also happen with a lot of academic terms once they enter the public sphere. And it's interesting because queer didn't originate in academia, but it's so laden with academic meaning that it going back out into the public, it's almost, you know, there's a conversation to be had, maybe not now, about like how terms become depoliticized once they enter the public sphere. So for example, decolonial can sometimes mean, as my previous supervisor used to say, decolonial can sometimes be used interchangeably with diversity in more public spheres, but that's not actually what it means and it shouldn't be used in that way. It's looking at these terms and like just to the synonymous aspect and then like using it as a definition. I have definitely seen a lot of institutions use queer and it's quite tone deaf usually the way it's being used because it's 
it's, you know, paired up with a lot of rather capitalist intentions where it's like, come on, this is a queer night, Mm. buy drinks, you know? And that is not the point of this, nor is LGBTQ plus (laughs) supposed to be used for these sort of things. It's why there's LGBTQ plus friendly bars or places and stuff. The friendly is the buffer between this being a political statement with it just being used as like queer, duh, to the point. Yeah, it loses its power. And also the reclamation of the word is political. It's meant to incite some sort of sensation, whether it be positive or negative. So by desensitizing it, it loses its political volition and it's not a stand-in. If you still feel uncomfortable using it, then then don't. It doesn't have to be used. Yeah, you don't have to use it. Just know these are some of the ways that it has been used. So queer can be used as a verb to deconstruct, as Jung says. Queer can be used as a verb to deconstruct logic and frameworks and dismantle the dynamics of power and privilege in any given space or situation. Jung specifically using it in theological terms very interesting but i use it more broadly than that so queer was originally used to quote describe anything that is noticeable because it is odd and that's from sara ahmed in queer use but when something is odd or out of the ordinary it can rub up against accepted bases of knowledge and ways of working within any given space or institution and it can make clear inconsistencies of approaches and bring into question what has previously been framed as logical Power relations are very key here if you use queer in this kind of way. It's it's used to question how these power relations came into place, who gets to establish knowledges, categories, etc. Why them? Connecting back to Bolant and Warner's point, this is kind of why they don't want queer to be fixed. So it can continue to do this job of questioning. If you fix the term, you again, like depoliticize it, you remove its power to change with the times essentially. Yeah, and maybe this is maybe looking too deep into this, but like also the word fix means to make it be unable to move from that definition. So I think it's very purposely stated. And you know, once more, like I said earlier, queer is a slippery term. It's supposed to be slippery and it should forever remain slippery. Yeah. And so connecting this then, this deconstruction dismantling to binaries. So a binary, and you'll have heard us talk about this in the Sedgwick episode, A binary is related to or composed of or involving two opposites or mutually exclusive terms. One of the main components of queer theory then is going beyond or undermining these binary structures. If we connect this to sexuality, this is useful for thinking beyond gay and straight dynamics like Sedgwick was doing in Epistemology of the Closet. So it's thinking beyond these binaries. And you might see a lot of projects and things. There's even modules, there's a module in the sociology department at Warwick called Beyond the Binary. You know, it's it's taking this queer theory one step further. So queer theory in the norm then. Queer theory has often been defined 
through its resistance to norms. If you want sources that connect to this, Jakobson in 1998 talks about it a lot. But a norm then is anything that is usual, typical or standard, basically something that is a given. Michael Warner in The Trouble with Normal in 1999 says, quote, we queer things when we resist the regimes of normal, the normative ideals of aspiring to be normal in identity, behavior, appearance, relationships, etc. End quote. And this can also go into like theory of masculinity, where like normal is represented by whatever the status quo of that community is. So normal is also another slippery term. What's normal in one place is not normal in the other. And within like that binary, within a space of mostly gay people, there is a gay normal. So the traditional view of binaries where like a sexuality is repressive and one is not, and one is quote unquote normal, changes within environments. This is also why we need to think beyond binary. Binary is not fixed the binary changes it morphs and it goes just it it can even go within heterosexuality so just throwing that little tidbit in there (laughs) yeah and i don't have it in a note here but what you said just reminded me so this is also coming off a jasper puar text but in the introduction to that text puar's questioning queer's anti-state rhetoric so i won't go into it but it's interesting also to think about queer defining itself as anti-normative it becomes restricted by whatever the norm is if you place yourself in opposition to something then technically you're always defined by whatever that thing that you're in opposition with so again there becomes this issue of queer becoming too fixed so yeah that's just uh, an extra point there uh It can also get really complicated as queer itself can become a normalizing force. Kathy J. Cohen in 1997 laments the ways in which, quote, queer had been built around a simple dichotomy between those deemed queer and those deemed heterosexual, end quote. So what happens here is that queer gets attributed to good and heterosexuality gets attributed to bad. I see a lot of this on TikTok. This is incredibly binarizing and actually neglects the ways in which queer subjects enact power in their own right and replicate normative structures and existences. I just wanted to also throw in this quote here from Martin F. Manalanson IV. Manalanson says in 2018, quote, queerness and queer are not about the heroic and triumphant distancing from the normative, but rather how queerness and queers are awash in the flow of the everyday where norm and queer are not easily indexed or separable, but constantly colliding, clashing, intersecting and reconstituting. Therefore, queerness and normative are really about the mess, its violence, ambivalence and its productive possibilities. End quote. That just really sums up what I'm saying better than I can. <laughs> oh my god. No, I, uh, off camera, I went, oof. <laughs> Heather Love also, love Heather Love, but Heather Love offers a really interesting counterpoint to this idea of anti-normativity that's present in queerness. So giving recognition to queerness and stabilizing queerness can actually be more powerful than queer disruption. It might be what's needed now to give shelter to what is marginal and threatened. So acknowledgement of queerness and its relationship with rather than against the norm might be useful here. So an example that Heather Love gives in that talk, 
but queer domesticity is an example right and queer domesticity is you know you live at home with your partner you adopt children you get married you do all these domestically everyday things and giving shelter to queer people in that way and the study of that might be more helpful than these constant studies of queer as anti-normative again this has its fours and against <laughs> so we define it in a in a previous podcast but understanding homonormativity and queer utopias jose esteban munoz writes about this in cruising utopia um is a good book to kind of maybe start thinking about some of this i would say i would add the caveat this is not an easy book to read no but it is interesting it's a fantastic book this is a book that you would get into once you've read some of the the starter books but with increasing utopia i'm going off the top of my head i haven't read this in a very long time but it looks at the dangers of settling to homonormativity which is the queer homosexual equivalent to heteronormativity you know like the nuclear family structure because within that structure it presents once more a binary of what is appropriate gay queer lesbianness in contrast to the ones that do not fall into that definition Mm -hmm. yeah and it's also talking about how this queer utopia that we're striving towards is always ever out of reach which is why it's interesting maybe to think of in relation to this so i'm going to finish on talking about queerness whiteness and the west so queer theory whilst originally a western conception has actually been taken up and expanded beyond these spaces i only know of a few so this is just coming from my brain (laughs) but i'm sure there's more out there and i've been increasingly interested in more localized conceptions of queerness and i'll kind of go into that in a minute but firstly i mentioned earlier that queerness has often been associated with whiteness and there's actually been a push for a version of queerness that incorporates people of color and deals with the connection between queerness and colonialism so e patrick john i'm I'm just going to start shouting people out if you want to read them they're in the description (laughs) they're always in the description but i'll try i'll try and give you a little definition and then if you really want us to go over it we can look at those texts ourselves in a future episode maybe so e patrick johnson's qua studies which is q u a r e and I'm going to take a quote from a, a different book that Johnson also talks in, in 2001. So, quote, Beyond queer theory's failure to focus on materiality, it has also failed to acknowledge consistently and critically the intellectual, aesthetic, and political contributions of non-white and non-middle-class gays, bisexuals, lesbians, and transgender people in the struggle against homophobia and oppression. Moreover, even when white queer theorists acknowledge these contributions, rarely do they ever self-consciously and overtly reflect on the ways in which their whiteness informs their critical queer position. And this is occurring at a time when naming one's positionality has almost become a standard protocol in other areas of scholarship. Although there are exceptions, most often white queer theorists fail to acknowledge and address racial privilege, end quote. So a long quote, but Johnson puts it in in this issue with queer theory in really interesting ways yeah yeah because it doesn't take in, uh, a lot of queer theory does not take into consideration that queerness is not the only oppression that's being faced so you know you could be 
a woman, you can be a trans woman, you can be a person of color, you can, and then on top of everything else, you're also queer. So it is one of those, it's just like, this is only part of the complicatedness of the being, whereas for others, it's specifically like love queer theory, but I see it a lot where this is their only oppression. They grew up quite wealthy. They went to the really nice unis with the really nice scholarships. And it doesn't take into consideration the people that, one, buy their book. (laughs) They're very usually expensive books. And the time that it takes to educate themselves. And then on top of that, to deal with their own existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to point out as well, so intersectionality, which is Crenshaw's theory, which again, I won't go into too deeply, but it's essentially what Paula's saying. You have intersecting identities, intersecting areas of oppression that can affect you. But whilst queer theory does tend to incorporate Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality, this is where some of the tension I feel comes from people saying that intersectionality shouldn't be spoken of apart from race because you get people taking up intersectionality but they they don't really acknowledge what privilege they hold and it gets kind of complicated but there is a criticism there (laughs) it's super complicated it's also it, it can be at times problematic because it reduces people to percentages and what is seen what is unseen so obviously we're seeing all these things not as absolute truths, but as things that are both challenging and informing to causes. I also want to point out that materiality, which is what E. Patrick Johnson is criticizing queer theory for not dealing with, is the material conditions of people's everyday lives. So things like poverty, discrimination, violence, employment or unemployment, disability. Queer theory has been criticized of being too abstract to be able to deal with this material lived experience of people's everyday lives. So E. Patrick Johnson comes up with something called QA studies. Essentially, E. Patrick Johnson is trying to reconcile queerness and black studies under kind of one thing. And it's really interesting. You also have people, as previously mentioned, like Jasbir Puar, who's dealing with homonationalism, which is the theory of how gay rights and women's rights have been used to support imperialist and racist agendas in relation to othered cultures. So basically saying we're better than this country because they haven't given gay people rights. Once more, that's what homonationalism means. It does not mean that you are a homosexual fascist. Jasbir Puar's critique is that white and western spaces also produce these inequalities. You know, we're seeing it especially, especially now. Puar has a really interesting, uh, I think it's the 10th anniversary edition of homonationalism. I think the book is called that. But the 10th anniversary edition deals with Puar talking about Trump and Trump's America. Also interesting. But expanding beyond that, you know, you have rights like abortion rights being taken away in the US. You have the far right leanings or the the right leanings of many of these Western countries. So yeah. And I'm also disappointedly seeing it with other causes in what's happening in the Middle East currently. It is 2023. So there's a lot of movements for in different countries. But the one I'm thinking of right now is the oppression of women in the Middle East right now. And the response that I have been seeing from LGBTQ plus people 
stating like, well, these countries don't care about me, so why should I care about them? That is homo nationalism. It is disregarding of others' lives for this idealism and utopic vision of oneself. So it's quite dangerous. These texts are also, I think, like the Muñoz, uh, these are later on sort of texts because they're building upon basic queer study text. I don't like keep saying text. Articles, no. Uh, bodies of work. <laughs> yeah. And you also have people like Rahul Rayo who expands upon Puar's theory of homo-nationalism to come up with the theory of homo-capitalism, which essentially brings capitalism into Puar's theory and taking it further very interesting you also you also have uh, i mentioned manuel anson earlier who discusses isn't the only one but there's a particular article that i think sums everything up really well who discusses kind of queer of color critique you have kathy j cohen who wrote the it's a very seminal text punks bulldaggers and welfare queens the radical potential of queer politics question mark in 1997 And Cohen is very excellently unpacking queer theory in the light of black feminism. Really interesting. You also have groups like Queer Asia who also wrote a book, an edited collection. So you have these many, many texts. You also have Joseph Pierce, who I love Joseph Pierce's work, (laughs) who's starting to bring in decolonizing thoughts into queerness and queerness into de- colonial thoughts connecting the two so we've gone on and on (laughs) but i just wanted to also point out when i was talking about these localized versions of queerness what i'm referring to is this expansion of queer particularly when you're thinking about translation and coming up with versions of queer that essentially can't be translated back it's it's really interesting so you have k-w-e-r again queer studies which i believe is south african and i will put a talk in the description which covers this in a bit more detail i believe that's how it's spelled i will double check and then you have queer again which is c-u-i-r and there's a glq journal special edition which covers translation and this kind of queer studies but that's more latin american queerness and so you have this beautiful kind of expansion of queerness that deals with things that queer theory couldn't do. And when you bring translation in, it becomes even more interesting and complicated and who gets to read queer theory and whose queer theory gets heard and whose queer theory even gets translated to English. And yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, even illuminating to me because <laughs> I, I know I have my basics. I have a couple things here and there, but I unfortunately like know very little of queer studies outside of the West, especially outside of the UK and the US. <laughs> and I will say it's hard to find this stuff. I wouldn't blame people for not knowing because it's almost like a trickle effect, right? Once you find one person talking, they give references to another person. But again, like, for example, I only read English. I only found out about the the C-U-I-R one because of Joseph Pierce talking about it in a talk I went to. So unless you know, and you're in the know, yeah. Yeah, and like in the notes, I I know a lot about like the theory of hybridity and all that stuff Mm. because of, honestly, because of the history of art courses. 
<laughs> we were forced to learn this. Uh, so yeah, please support your local history of art. <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> jokes. <coughs> oh my god, I'm gonna die. Uh, but, uh, but jokes aside, there is no succinct definition for queer, and that is also why it may be really difficult to find outside sources. So this could still be a term that is oppressive to many in other countries. I know that even in Puerto Rico, which is a U.S. territory, using the word queer is still a little bit dicey. Not because it's unwelcome, although depending on the area, it can be quite unwelcome, but because there's no definition, it's really hard to comprehend. So, like, for example, I explained to my grandma, like, yeah, like, queer things, and she's like, what does that mean? And it's like, oh, you know, like, kind of gay, and she's just like, isn't that just gay? <laughs> I'm like, no. And she's like, okay, then what is it? And then I'm at a loss for words because she is 80 and lives in the mountains, you know? <laughs> so the, there is also, using the term queer is also in itself quite a privilege. So even in like us being able to sit down and talk about these things and like describe them took us a lot of time in reading and working it out and discussions with other people. And these are sort of leisure times where we're able to to do these things. So if someone doesn't quite comprehend the term or doesn't like to use the term because they're not sure what it exactly means, it does not necessarily mean that like they're homophobic or something like that. But it also takes into consideration no queer person looks like another. So there is no agenda. But it's been an hour of us recording. I don't think it will be an hour in edit. And I hope you enjoyed. And if there's anything you want us to provide an introduction to in the future let us know like do you want an introduction to neoliberalism an introduction to marxism let us know but hopefully this is helpful for understanding queer theory and the way we've spoken about queer theory in the podcast yeah and remember there's no one definition uh, especially with this and it is also consistently changing yeah whereas like i feel like you know, post-structuralism, post-modernism has teetered or have a finite ending. This is still an ongoing approach to academia. And yeah, it's, who knows yeah. what it looks like in the future. Yeah. But thank you for listening. <laughs> thank you so much. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Theoryish. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your thoughts. Check out our Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter at Theoryish underscore pod for up-to-date information. And please rate, follow, and leave a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. If you're interested in finding anything we have mentioned in the episode, please check our show notes or description to find more details. You can also contact us at theoryishpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Goodbye.